Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our mind. Today you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing, a show that honours the intellectual sovereignty of black fellows and amplifies the power of black knowledge. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Professor Chelsea Wadigo and Dr. David Singh. Good morning, you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing. And before we get into today's show, um, I would like to, on behalf of both Dr. David Singh and I, acknowledge the traditional owners on the land in which we're recording from this morning and the land in which you're listening from, wherever that may be. How are you going, Dr. Singh? Not too bad this fine Monday morning. Hmm. Now, we're continuing our our theme of Let's Talk Black Knowing and it's... um, it's a very special show today um, in speaking about black knowing, particularly of racial violence in this place. Mm. Um, and we are very fortunate to be joined this morning um, by Uncle Rick uh, Hampson, uh, who um, tragically lost his son, uh, Dougie, um, in circumstances that would be described as preventable and avoidable. Um, in his encounter with the health system. Uh, If you've been following the news, um, an inquest into Dougie's death will be taking place next week um, in New South Wales. And um, this morning we are joined by his dad uh, to share with us a story of his life um, and the family's fight for justice. Good morning, Uncle Rick. Good morning, uh, good morning, Chelsea. Good morning, David. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us and for yarning with us this morning. Um, as is tradition in our show, um, for our listeners, uh, could you introduce yourself, your mob, where you come from, a bit about who you are? Uh, well, my name is Rick Hampson. Um, I'm a proud Anawandangadi descendant. Um, that's mid-north coast New South Wales at Inland. Um I'm a member of the Stolen Generation, so I don't know all my mob, but I've met a few that live in Kempsey, but my grandmother and all that were born in Walker, which is sort of on the edge of the New England area. Um, Yeah, I've got seven children, um, one which is deceased now. That's why we're here. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for joining us. I I thought we'd start this yarn this morning, um, speaking of um, Dougie's life. Um, I really have been influenced by the work of Dr. Amy Maguire, who um, has uh, reported on um, the the violence of murdered and missing Indigenous women and the ways in which um, we get reduced to our wounds and people forget the the beauty of, of black life. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about Dougie um, as a child, as a young man. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, well, Dougie was our firstborn. Um, we spoiled him a bit. <laughs> um, the kids always say now, why is there so many photos of Dougie? <laughs> he, was the, he was the first and, you know, like we just, he was, he was just a beautiful child. Like if you ever get to see some of the baby photos of him, you see how smiley and bubbly and that he was. Um, we grew up in Sydney and we moved out west to Campbelltown and his bigger cousins used to play football and that and he was still like three, four years old and 
he used to play tackle with them on the front lawn, mm. and you know, so he, he he was toughened up pretty quick. Um, he's a very kind, gentle little kid. Um, when he was about eight years old, we moved to Canberra, and he went to school and that there. And me and his mother had a few issues, and we split up for believe it or not, sixteen years. Mm. Um, so at that age, Dougie, you know, was like. 11, coming into a young teenage age. So for them years, he sort of stood up and beat the man in the family. Mm. Took on a lot of responsibility and stuff like that and always protected his brothers and sisters and his mother. Um, he ended up meeting a girl in Canberra. He had three girls first that were born in Canberra. Then he decided to move to Dubbo, where this, where his partner was from. Um and yeah, sort of started his, the rest of his family up there. Um, like I said, after the 16 years of our separation, we got back together. When one of the granddaughters were burned, she was flown to Sydney and we sort of rekindled after that. Wow. Got back together and we're still back together now, 15 years. And Dougie was so proud mm-hmm. that we were back together and he was happy that there was some there, someone there to look after his mum and that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Dougie, all he wanted was his family, his kids, his own home sort of thing. Um, that never eventuated. They had their problems. So from 2014 until we passed in 21, that was sort of just on and off, um, which, you know, sort of got him on the streets a bit up there in Dubbo and, you know, dabbled in a bit of the drugs and that sort of stuff. Um, but he was always happy and full of life. Like, I remember Christmases, they'd come down and he was always the one to make everybody laugh and that sort of stuff, you know. He'd be dancing around and singing and saying, come over here and dance and sing mm-hmm. this and sing mm-hmm. that. And he was very musical. Um, yeah, and it just, you know, a few times in and out of jail with AVO orders and, you know, not abiding by them. Then he had his grandson in July 2020, their first grandchild. So when he got out of jail in September of 2020, they decided to give it another go, um, which they did, and that lasted, I think, about nine months. And there was another big blow-up, Then he ended up in Dubbo again just staying with friends and that sort of stuff. And, yeah, he was just on the, well, what was it, the 14th of August, 21, he was just walking along the streets of Dubbo and he felt something pop inside of his stomach and it just dropped him to the ground. Mm. Um, so that happened about 5 o'clock that afternoon and he was being triaged at 12 minutes past five, so he must have got himself to that hospital pretty fast. Mm. So it must have been serious because he was, wasn't the type of person to go to hospitals. Mm. He didn't like doctors and things like that, and he thought hospitals were a place to go to die. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you know, I can tell that side of the story, what happened in the hospital that a bit later in the show, but that's pretty much where his life ended. Um they kept him for 19 hours. They sent him home and he was found unresponsive the next morning. Can I ask, um, 
how did you, how was this communicated to you, um, the events initially when you first were told? Um, well, I was in Yass where we live. Um, my wife was here at my daughter's place in Canberra. And I got a phone call from my daughter screaming and yelling and carrying on. Um, I didn't know what was going on. She mm. said, she was just saying, Doug's dead, Doug's dead. Um, and I, I, I was telling her to calm down, settle down. What do you mean? What do you got? What's going on? And then she told me, Doug's dead. So I jumped in the car, rushed over here, um, found them too hysterical, things like that. And next minute, oh, well, probably 20 minutes after that, we had phone calls from police in Dubbo that were on scene saying that he was passed. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was, it was a shocking day. Um, that was two and a half years ago, and we mm. live we live that day every day. Like, yeah. it's just something that shouldn't have happened, and I, I just can't bring myself around to believe mm. the mentality of people that let this happen. It's just it's incredible. And he so he um, passed away at a at a friend's house. Is that right? How did you yeah. um, how did you find out that there was you know about something that had happened here? Um, and the events of his being released from hospital. What was the process? In um, I just started making phone calls after phone calls, shooting emails after emails to the hospital, to Western Health, all that sort of stuff, trying to work out what happened, why he was in the hospital and this and that. Um, it took me a while to get some answers, a um, matter of a couple of weeks. There was a gentleman out there that worked in Western Health that actually rang me and I had a conversation with him and he wasn't aware of what was going on and he said that he was going to get a serious adverse event review mm-hmm. done. Can you explain for our listeners what, what a serious adverse events review is? Um, it's a review team within the hospital that go over what happened in them 19 hours they had him. Mm-hmm. Um, in that review report, they admitted to being biased towards him on presentation. Um, and, yeah, it's it's just crazy. If you read through it, some of the things in there is just unbelievable. Like they diagnosed him of cannabinoid hyperemphasis syndrome, which is someone craving for cannabis. Mm. Um, and that's what they put down the pain in the belly to. Um, but he told him when he first went in there that something popped, something tore inside of him. Mm. 10 out of 10 pain, 130 beats a minute heart rate, which is tachycardic, I think the word is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so and they... I understand the reports um, say that he was sedated for 19 hours yeah. um, and given painkillers um, and discharged without a di- diagnosis beyond the presumption of... Um, yeah. Well, like I said, he, we, at 12 minutes past five, he was being triaged. 38 minutes later, now you take the time out of that to be triaged, wait for the doctor to come and have a look, whether he did or not, we still don't know. Um, 38 minutes later, they sedated him. Now, for the sedation dose for that cannabinoid hyperemphasis syndrome is 0.625 milligrams. They gave him five milligrams. That's eight times the amount 
they should have gave him. That's why he was in a sedated sleep for 19 hours and couldn't advocate for himself, couldn't explain, you know, you're just not doing the right thing here, that sort of thing. He had no hope. Hmm. Um, yeah, um, and that in that time they were in there because the pain in the stomach and he told him he hadn't had bowel movements for three days, they were treating him for constipation. So how do you diagnose a person with one thing but you're treating them for another mm. for the same complaint? And his um, cause of death would later be identified as a result of? Two perforated ulcers, which they call duodenal ulcers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them tore his stomach wall, the other one tore his bowel wall. He ended up with four litres of waste inside of his abdomen mm. on the autopsy report. And this is a condition that could have been treated had he been diagnosed when presenting to the hospital? Yep. If, like, he went in there, he told him something popped and tore inside of him, that dropped him to the ground. Now, we can't see through the skin. Mm. So why didn't they give him a scan? The doctors told us if they would have gave him a scan, they would have had him in theatre that night, he'd be alive today. So all they had to do was listen to him instead of looking at a black man mm. that's admitted to smoking cannabis and treated as drug-related when it wasn't. Now we, um, I met you through the uh, Partnership for Justice and Health and, and came across um, your story and um, David and I and some colleagues, um, George Newhouse from the National Justice Project, um, uh, analysed this this story to write a special uh, editorial for the Medical Journal of Australia to talk about or make visible um, the ways in which racial stereotypes impact on the deaths, preventable deaths of blackfellas in the health system. Um, and what was interesting to us in looking at um, his story was uh, the attachment of um, well, the the convergence of a range of stereotypes mm. upon Indigenous peoples. So um, the presumption of drug use, m- which renders people just undeser- deemed undeserving of care um, in the health system um, and in society generally, we, we you know, have to recognise. Um, but also his last known address or his, um, the contact person for his, on his medical records, um, for memory, it was the prison. That's correct. So we had yeah. saw this, um, you know, health professionals seeing him criminalised, mm-hmm. uh, drug user, um, and we, I guess, theorised mm-hmm. that his indigeneity, criminality and, and drug use was operating in the minds of those health professionals who deemed him undeserving of a scan, which would have properly led mm-hmm. to a diagnosis and treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. confluence of factors triggering uh, a run of particular kinds of racial stereotyping. Uh, so, uh, Ricky, you mentioned how Dougie presented himself um, as a black man. Um, he had some tattoos um, and he looked a bit worse for wear. And then um, all manner of negative stereotypes, we suspect, began to uh, guide the assessment. Um would that be correct? Oh, without doubt. Yeah. I've got no doubt in my mind. That's exactly what they're doing. I've read through all the medical notes. Like I, I mm. had to put an application to get all these notes and everything. Can I ask um, what, mm. 
Sorry. Sorry. Can I ask what it was what it was like to be reading those? Mm. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Like you shouldn't have to go through this. Yeah. Mm. Like they didn't take his life, only his life. They took our life too. Mm. You know, all we've been doing is going through this same thing every day over and over and over. It's like a nightmare. Um but but without doubt, like I've read through it all and all you see is there was reports of acute intoxication, alcohol intoxication from years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Is there was the um, the next of kin being the jail, and he admitted to smoking the cannabis. Mm. So they they just looked at that, and it's all through the reports. It's, but you don't you only hear it once or twice about the popping sounds. So mm-hmm. they're not listening to him; they're just looking at him, looking mm-hmm. at who he is, what he was. And judged him on that, hmm. and it's racial violence. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, and, the, and that's why we fought. And this treatment um, in the health system, I, I heard you before when you talked about, um, you know, being sedated so he couldn't advocate for himself, and having not updated his next of kin. Um, I remember um, your partner, his wife, uh, his mum talking about that sense of helplessness of not being contacted and being able to advocate for him also. Um, yeah. that all of these factors meant he was, there was no one that could advocate for him. Um, but the thing I don't understand with that, the jail being his next of kin, he walked in off the street. Yeah. He wasn't in jail greens. Mm-hmm. Mm. There was no guards with him, anything like that. Doesn't anything click in these people's minds? Mm. Well, I've been to you know a few I mean? emergency rooms in my life with five kids and typically that's one of the first questions and the frustrating questions because you often have a medical emergency and they go through just confirming next of kin or your details and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, there's so many steps along the way where you just wonder why why all these things happened. And it speaks yeah. to the power of racial stereotypes, which people often dismiss or they label yeah. things like unconscious bias. But it is yeah. a form of violence and you know we've tried to name that explicitly that this is life and death mm. for black fellas yep. um, in a place where you expect a level of care mm. uh, well you go for there for help and mm. i know okay. stubborn black men too i know that they only go to the hospital when mm. it's absolutely necessary um, that, you know, and I hear um, your story and how he thought about hospitals. I know it's all too familiar for a whole lot of black fellas um, that you only go there if you really, really need to. And right. to be dismissed yeah. as um, mm. sort of putting it on or, you know, not really having um, a, a, a legitimate medical condition. Um, mm. And time and time, time again we've come across stories uh, Ricky, uh, similar stories of uh, black folk waking, waiting uh, in reception to be seen uh, and, you, you know, largely ignored. Both here and in Canada, we've reported on cases in Canada, um, similar story, um, the, the, the prevalence of racial stereotyping in immediate assessments and beyond. Um, And in fact, we found the patterns of those um, in studies um, in the US in the piece that we um, wrote with you, Mm. Uncle, um, that initially was to go into the Medical Journal of Australia about racism and the health system. And the MJA editor at the time refused to publish 
this editorial um, because of the case mm. and these and concocted kind of legal reasoning for why his story shouldn't be told in the Medical Journal of Australia. Mm. Um, and, of course, you know, we since had it published in Meange and um, his story as well as the, the story of this constant attempt to cover up this mm. racial violence um, or to make excuses for or to, to not have people um, know about mm. what's happened. Now, um, you've since then um, have had a long fight in getting a coronal inquest into his death. Can you tell us about that process and, and why you've pursued that? Um, yeah, long road. Yeah. Um, we, we decided to go down that avenue because we wanted the truth. We need to know what's going on. Um, relying on what the hospitals say and, you know, they look after each other and they cover each other's backs. So we need to get sort of some sort of truth, hopefully. Um, so we started, I think it was four months after his passing, we had a protest in front of the hospital in Dubbo. Um, we met with the big knobs of the Western Health out there before the protest started. We ended up walking out on that meeting because they, they were... There was, it was just ridiculous. There was too many failures that night and we, we just couldn't sit there and talk to them anymore. So we went out and we done the protest. Um, we got a bit of media coverage and that, and that started the ball rolling. Um, the hard work of the National Justice Project, mm. they helped us a lot and they still are. They're a legal counsel in the inquest. Um, we went from there. We've done media conferences from State Parliament in Sydney. We've met a few politicians. Um, been doing rallies in Canberra, Sydney. Um, we've had media stories on The Point, NITV News, that sort of stuff, and just getting it out there and fighting for this inquest. Um, I think it was about just over 12 months into the fight, they granted the inquest, but they didn't give us a date until July last year, which is starting on the 26th, Monday next week. Wow. Um, and because you, you had the um, hospital investigation, which um, is not made public, I understand, but there was in that um, some concession of um, inadequate treatment or unconscious bias or there was oh. something that was indicative in the in internal investigation that... Yeah, I'm sick of that word. I'm, well, actually <laughs> so am I. Yeah. <laughs> I'm treading carefully here. Um, but, yeah. yeah, no, I... I actually looked it up yesterday. Um, to find out what it actually meant. And it had a few meanings, but right down the bottom it says racial discrimination. Mm. Um, but, yeah, they use these fancy words, um, early diagnostic closure, anchoring bias. Um, it, it's just fancy words to cover up the truth. Mm. Um, and certainly that's... that's the yeah, well, that's what we found in this analysis of this language that masks racial violence and this kind of medical rationalising of a preventable, avoidable death mm. that had yeah. a cure, that, that there were steps that could have been taken to diagnose and treat. And um, sadly, I think a lot of people don't realise, um, you know, there is, um, and rightly so, attention given to deaths in custody 
um, of our mob and because of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander death in custody automatically is referred to for a coronal inquest. But we are seeing, and we've seen for some time now, I mean, there's a reason why blackfellas think of hospitals as places to die, because the health system, like policing, um, is the state at work. And there are blackfellas dying at the hands of doctors and medical staff, just like there are blackfellas dying at the hands of cops. Um, and oftentimes, and we've seen particularly in more recent years, the confluence of both, mm. of the refusal to provide medical care in the course of being in custody or in the in course of the encounter. So the health system and the um, uh, policing mm. are working in tandem to produce these preventable and avoidable deaths of mob. Um, but sadly, um, deaths of blackfellas in the health system aren't automatically referred for a coronal inquest and... Um, Helena Kylick, who is um, uh, one of our PhD students, has been looking at deaths, preventable deaths of blackfellas in the health system post-2000. And I think she found somewhere in excess of 4,000 mm. preventable and avoidable deaths that were referred to the coroner, with only about 300 going to inquest. No more in our mind. Today you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk... This is your host, Professor Chelsea Wadigo and Dr. David Singh. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing and usual co-hosts, myself, Chelsea Wadigo and Dr. David the Settler Singh. Good morning, everyone. And this morning, um, we have the privilege of talking to Uncle Rick Hampson about the tragic, preventable, avoidable death of his son, Ricky Dougie Hampson Jr. at Dubbo Hospital in 2021. Um, Uncle Rick, you talked earlier about putting your life on hold in the lead up, you know, in, in the fight for justice for your son. Can I ask what this has been like for you and the family and, and also a week out from this inquest, how do you prepare for something like this? Um, I don't think you can prepare it's just something that's sneaking up on us. Um, it's something we want and we've always wanted. Um, but as it gets closer, you get more nervous, more anxious to find out, you know, is the truth going to come out or are they going to hide what they usually try to hide? I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Groundhog Day, where the same mm. day just repeats itself. That's what it's like. Um, you wake up in the morning and you don't think of it in that first split second until you get up and you go, oh, here we go again. It's mm. that same day over and over again. You're either doing phone calls, some sort of interviews, or you're doing emails about what's going on and fighting for this inquest and preparing for the inquest and having things organised, that sort of stuff. And it's it's just taken our lives. And I've seen a psychologist for the last two years. It's good to talk to somebody, but it doesn't change anything. Mm -hmm. um, you're still that person. Like it's it's two and a half years, and it's like it's happened yesterday. It just takes over your life somehow. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like it's not real. Mm. Um, but you know it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's crazy. Like like I said earlier on, they didn't just take his life; they took ours as well. Mm -hmm. And even when this inquest is over, and it's 
all that's over, that part of it's never going to change. When I hear you speak of change, I'm reminded of all of the families who have lost loved ones at the hands of the state in different circumstances who come to these processes and, and, and remain committed to these fights because of the desire to at least change it for someone else so that they never go through this um, again. What change do you seek, your family seek, in this process for others? We want changes as in a safe place for blackfellas to go when they need medical help. With the Naomi Williams inquest in 2019, there was recommendations made there that should have been in place and Dougie wouldn't have been in this position, but they were never put in place. And you had the Minister for Health back then, I think it's Brad Hazard, Mm -hmm. I believe. Um, He sat down with Naomi's mother, Sharon, and told her that this will never happen in New South Wales ever again to another black fellow. Mm. And none of them recommendations were put in place. And like I said, if they were, Dougie would be here today. But it's, you know, like these recommendations the coroner wants to give out, it's just advice. But, uh, mm. They don't have to act on them. They don't have to do anything if they don't want it. And this is the thing I think few people realise that um, and why um, mob are frustrated with these processes and inquiries and investigations is because despite putting people's uh, families through this pain um, and, you know, um, coming up with recommendations, they are not legally enforceable. And what we've seen with nearly every investigation and inquiry into Indigenous deaths anywhere and everywhere is that the recommendations don't get implemented. And that's then the next fight is to actually do what they have themselves recommended should be happening. And I think the general community doesn't realise that if these recommendations were put in place, everyone would have a better experience of care. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's not hard. Like, it's no. just they take an oath to take care of people, to save lives and this sort of stuff. Why judge anybody, yeah. any race, any colour? Yeah. I just don't get it. Mm. But, but, you know, we've been dealing with it for 236 years, so mm. changes have got to come, and that's one, one of our fight. Like, we're fighting for justice. We want someone held accountable for what they did, and we want changes within the health system. Um more ALOs, 24-7, they can do shifts. Yep. Um, more training as into the past and what we've already dealt with and more truth-telling. This is what this Mm-mm. country needs. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's one of our goals as well. So we hope we get change out of this for all black followers. The um, thing I think we've learnt over the um, years of dealing with race and finding, trying to find justice in legal systems that are as violent as the health systems in which we're seeking justice, for, you know, um, in. Um, we've had to really rethink, on, even for ourselves and some of the cases that we work on, is what justice is for us. Um, because oftentimes we've been led to believe justice is found in the legal system with a verdict, with the result. Um, but for us, what sustains us in all of our work is redefining what justice is. And there are sometimes moments of justice in processes, not always in the outcome. How do you 
and your family think about justice and have there been moments where you felt a sense of justice in the midst of the fight that you've been forced to take up? No, I can't say I really have, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, probably the only time we thought in that way would be when we were told we're getting the inquest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think justice for blackfellas is, you know, we just want to be equal. We want to be treated like everyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still living in a colony, mm-hmm. but reali- realistically we're never going to get all this land back. So we've got to live this life, but we need to be recognised as a sovereign people of this land. We need to be recognised as a normal human being, not treated like an animal when we go to places like hospitals and things like that. Mm. Um, We've only been recognised since 1967, the Mm. referendum, I believe. So it's just, yeah, treat us as human. Like you want to judge us on drug and alcohol use and that sort of stuff. There's plenty of other races, including Caucasians in this country, that are drug and alcohol affected. They still go into hospitals, still get good treatment. I look at the sympathy that given to afforded Barnaby Joyce. Mm-hmm. Passed that on the street. Mm. Seen that this morning. About the, the about yeah. the care and the concern yeah. for his health issues. Mm. Yeah, this is what an ex, what do they call it? Um, is it deputy prime minister? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, there we go. Mm. But <laughs> mm. I don't know if I can say it or not. None of them have got the gumption to stand up and say and do anything towards helping our people. They just want to make these little recommendations like the voice and think that they're doing something, but they're doing nothing. Mm. And we can see every day the differential treatment um, between blackfellas and whitefellas in this country. Um, and, just you know, I just, it, yeah, um, it's an insult uh, a daily indignity that blackfellas encounter in witnessing the care afforded to those um, uh, that if only half of that were afforded to us, mm-hmm. um, our loved ones would still be here. Yeah, um, exactly. The other I like question I, I had for you is when we're talking about change and thinking about your life um, before you lost Ricky to now, how do you think it's changed you politically? as a black fella, this experience? Well, I, I never, ever thought I'd be going to rallies and mm. speaking and, you know, screaming and carrying on and mm. the way just to get things done. Um, politically, I just, I'm going to, I've said it last year and I've said it again this year, that even when all this is over, I'm going to continue on mm. um, with the rallies and talking and until things, you know, start to get changed in this country. It's just, I never thought I'd ever have to be doing this sort of stuff. I didn't thought I'd have to want to do this stuff. Mm. But I will continue it on, um, even when the inquest is over and it's all settled. Um, the fight will continue. I've got some good contacts now within that Black Lives Movement. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I think a lot of settlers don't realise, um, you know, there's there's this framing of blackfellas um and political activism, as uh, I think Paris referred to us as serial protesters. Mm. Um, you know, there's a demonising of um, the black activists, so to speak. But when you yarn with mob who are in the fight, it's come from a place. It's come from a place of hurt, of injustice, but it's fueled by love for our people. 
That's right. Yeah. We're forced into doing it mm. because of their love for our people. Mm. We don't just choose to do it for something to do. We don't have another answer, so that's what we've got to do to try and get somewhere. And, you know, you've you've had to use all the formal processes, you know, and follow the rules and the, the procedures and, you know, jump through all the hoops and the, you know, freedom of information requests, the internal reviews, the um, medical editorial, all of these things. And even when you do and when you show evidence, their own evidence of their violence, there is still this concerted effort to silence or to do nothing. Yeah, you're sort of limited to what you can say and that sort of thing because, for one, the inquest hasn't happened yet and you don't want to jeopardise yep. anything. And it's hard when you get out there and you're trying to speak about Doug's story and about all blackfellas and what's going on. you just got to be very careful of the words you choose and, you know, like they've got all these fancy words. Sometimes you've got to use them and you can't use the words you really want to use, hmm. which it's it's hard, like you've got this much anger inside you you know Doug was 36 he didn't deserve to die mm. and we just got to keep fighting and you just got to bite your tongue sometimes until this is over once it's all over they're going to hear a bit more trust me yeah. we'd love to um come back to you after the inquest and um do whatever we can to amplify um Ricky's life, his story, what happened to him, um, and also walk with you on your ongoing fight for justice uh, for him and for mob everywhere who deserve care. Yeah, that'd be great. And as researchers, um, Ricky, uh, we'll redouble our efforts in attempting to understand racial violence and how it manifests in the health service in particular. Before we go, before we go, is there anything else you want people to know um, about your family's story, or what they should pay attention to in the week of his inquest as the the stories uh, come out, or how and how can they support? Um, I know, just yeah, follow the story. Um, hashtag justice for Dougie. You'll see a lot of it up on there on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Or you can also just Google Dougie Dubbo. You'll get a lot of the information there. Um, we are asking, you know, for all black fellas that are serious and they want that change and that turn up the Dubbo on the 26th of that morning. We're going to kick off at 8.30 with ceremony and statement to the media and that. And, you know, we just wanted that big crowd there the first day just to show the coroner that, you know, Dougie's life mattered and all black fellas' lives matters. So, yeah, support. Justice for Dougie. Thank you so much, Uncle. Thank you. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you, Chelsea. No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9 no a.m. on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service, and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au. Proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.